we're thinking now in this particular session um, about the topic of extraordinary identity. Um, identity is one of the key things, one of the key challenges, um, I believe, that we face as uh, a, cont a contemporary society, particularly contemporary Western society. And uh, many of uh, uh, the issues, issues that we face at the moment, where, where there, are, um, there, are, there are big issues uh, to do with um, transgender is absolutely massive and it's never out of the, the newspapers from day after day. Um, issues that uh, touch upon um, uh, marriage and sexuality. These things primarily are to do with identity. They're to do with um, the, the question, the age-old question, who am I? And the Bible isn't, um, isn't deficient or lacking when it comes to giving us an anthropology, um, giving us um, a narrative of what humanity is, because, of course, God himself is, is the creator of humanity. Now, we, we anchored it, didn't we, in that verse, John 13, verse 3, where it says, Jesus knew that the Father put all things under his power. He knew that he'd come from God and he knew that he was going to God. We looked at destiny, but he knew that he'd come from God. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus' identity was secure. And of course, Jesus' identity was as the son by nature, whereas those of us who are Christians, those of us who, who bowed the knee to Christ, are sons by adoption. So the uh, key verse there, Ephesians chapter 1, verse um, 5, where it says, uh, he has made us sons by adoption through Jesus Christ. So because of the gift of Christ, what Christ has done for us on the cross, each one of us who are Christian disciples, we have become uh, sons and daughters by adoption. We've been grafted in to his family. And this, I believe, is one of, one of the most powerful um, antidotes to, uh, the, the, to the issues that come to do with uh, a, a failure in contemporary society to adequately and sufficiently answer that question, who am I? Now, there are different ways that the Bible does this. Being a son or a daughter is uh, one picture image, uh, one, it's a, a reality, in fact, that's used in, in the Bible. But I believe um, it's the most powerful, and I believe also it's the most culturally resonant for our society. Now, that takes a little bit of unpacking, because I think there are some people who would say, that the idea of sonship or, be, or being a, an adopted son or daughter actually perhaps is no longer useful. It's no longer useful precisely because of the pandemic of fatherlessness with, uh, with, with many marriages um, ending in, in divorce in, the, in, our, in our Western context at the moment. So perhaps this is redundant. Perhaps we need uh, to think of a different one. I would argue the opposite um, is in fact true. We're going to be thinking about that in this session in just a moment. So we've had the, the passage uh, read to us, famous passage known to all of us here, of course, Luke chapter 15, one of Jesus' uh, most famous parables, the parable of the prodigal, the prodigal son. And, uh, and this, this story can be used on, on many different levels. It can be used evangelistically. But one of the ways that this passage can be used, and we're going to be thinking it in, in these terms today, is as a revelation of who God is, a revelation of God's fatherhood because that's absolutely key when we get a revelation of who God is his fatherhood that actually that is key to us owning affirming and celebrating our identity as his adopted sons and daughters but first what about the issue of um of fatherless familial breakdown in our society I'm, I myself am a, a product of that I'm you know in terms of the statistics now is it um, up to half marriages end in divorce. 
Um, so it's not an unusual thing these days. There'd be many people in the room that would, would uh, have, have experience of that, me, me included. I'm going to share a little bit of my story a little bit further on. This is immensely painful. And one of the ways that we cope with pain uh, as a society is humour. And that's not altogether bad. Who saw, who saw a few years ago, who's old enough to see the Aust- Austin Powers films? Anyone? And oh, quite a few of you, quite a few. Not the vicar, you don't know Austin Powers. Oh, the vicar did. That's good. Or he didn't like to own up to having to watch um, some of the Austin Powers movies. Anyway, um, and uh, played by Mike Myers. Austin Powers, of course, was a spoof James Bond. And uh, one of the things, those who've watched the the set will realise that uh, he had a bad, he he had a bit of an absentee dad. His father, um, um, played by um, Michael... Kane, Michael Kane, yeah, played by Michael Kane, was his kind of absentee dad. And I'm going to play a little clip, uh, and this is where Austin Powers gets a knighthood, and obviously he's really hoping his dad, who's been a bit absentee in his life, turns up, and of course his dad doesn't quite make it to the ceremony. Let's just watch the clip. So you get the idea if we can flip, flip back to the, the PowerPoint. So um, Austin Powers, he's got his, his absentee uh, father already mentioned, um, and I like that particularly... Steak and kidney pies when I was ostracised, when I was first baptised, daddy wasn't there. Great lyrics, of, <laughs> great lyrics of the song. But actually, um, fatherlessness, is, is humour is a mechanism for dealing with pain, isn't it? And uh, so not surprisingly, we find a way of, of laughing at this kind of stuff. But of course, it's no, it's no laughing matter. And um, those of us who are, um, as, a, as a society, um, that, that in, in many ways, the, the, the issue of, of fatherlessness in our society is something that has a significant effect. There are new stories like this that appear from time to time. A million, million children uh, growing up without fathers. There's a million uh, UK children growing up without a father in their lives. There's a new report on family breakdown. The Centre for Social Justice reports that lone parent families are increasing by more than 20,000 a year and will top uh, 2 million uh, by the next uh, general election. And um, there are st- uh, statistics... Um, there we go, put on the next one. There are statistics that many of us are, are familiar with, which are very sobering uh, to do with uh, the effect in reality in, in terms of the, uh, statistically in terms of uh, the effect of fatherlessness. So uh, what are five different experiences then of, uh, of being fathered that different, different ones of us in the room might have? Well, probably none of us have uh, this experience in terms of circles. This experience is the perfect father. So I don't think anyone uh, in this room, because we live in a fallen world, and all of us, who, those of us who are dads in the room, um, with the best will in the world and with the best intentions, we, d- we're not, we don't manage to be good dads uh, all the time. So our, ex- our, our experience of having a perfect dad, the circle without any break, uh, I don't think anyone will have had this um, um, experience in the room. So because of, because of our sinfulness, our, our frailty, even the, the, the best of dads who, tr- who try and be good and salient and present fathers, maybe it's like this. So it's a circle with a few um, kinks in it in different ways. Uh, we get it wrong. Uh, we, um, we, we mess up sometimes. Um, we're, we're not uh, the perfect dad, but we are a good dad. So I would say this is a depiction of a good dad, not a perfect dad, don't think they exist, but as a, as a, as a, a good dad. A few kinks in the circle is not always right. Um, it doesn't, we don't always get it right, but um, it's, it's pretty good. But there's another one which could be depicted uh, like this, a kind of a dotted circle. And this might be um, a, a, a father who is deficient. And your, your experience of being fathered might, might be like this. It might be a, def, a deficient uh, father. And that could be to do with work. You know, having a dad who was always at work and wasn't there. He could have been um, 
physically present but emotionally distant. That's another a model. Um, I chat as a pastor to some people like that who say, you know, my dad was there, my parents didn't get divorced, but he was, he was not there for me emotionally. He wasn't really capable of, of, of affirmation and showing love and, uh, and perhaps partic- particularly perhaps through, through words. And, um, and a, more, a more extreme version of this could be an, an abusive father. Of course, there's a, a worse one than this where the father's actually abusive and there are uh, some of us who, who suffer from abuse in, in various ways. And then there's a fourth one, which is just a, bl- a blank, deliberately a blank, because it's the absent father in terms of um, there are people who, who never know their, no, never know their dads. So my experience, I said I'd share a little bit about my experience. I think it was a mixture of uh, uh, this one in terms of a kind of, a, there was kind of a, some abusiveness going on there, but also um, absence as well. Uh, let me explain it a little, a little bit more detail. So I grew up in Lancaster in the north, north of England um, and uh, grew up the middle one of, th- of three boys. And um, my family were not a, Christ- a Christian family or a church-going family. And my earliest memories growing up uh, with, with, um, in Lancaster with my t- two brothers, my older brother, my younger brother, was with my mum and my, my dad. At least that's, I, I assumed that the, the, uh, the, the, the person who was the, f- the father figure there was my dad. And uh, more of that in a moment. What basically happened, and I found this out later is my parents had uh, got divorced, had a bit of a tumultuous marriage. They got divorced uh, when I was uh, uh, separating, got divorced when I was two or three. And my mum immediately started going out with this other guy. His name was Barry, so it was a kind of boyfriend, um, but he was uh, her common-law partner. And my mum decided um, what she thought was the best thing for us as boys was to, to bring us up to believe that this guy was our dad. And so that's one of my earliest memories were mum and dad, but, it, but as it turns out, it wasn't. My father is a guy called Barry. He's my mum's boyfriend, common-law partner. But my mum, she thought, you know, she thought that was the best thing. You know, she presumably thought she was going to stay with this guy um, uh, for life and, and thought you know, it would perhaps be best if we were brought up as children to believe that this, this, guy, was our, this, this guy was our dad. But the relationship turned sour and there was arguments uh, where there was kind of verbal aggression, even things were thrown and this kind of thing. And so my home environment, my earliest memories was that home didn't feel a safe place. It didn't feel a secure place in any way. And there was one particular day we'd moved house to a different part of the town, which was in 1976. So I was seven years of age. I remember this. And there was one of these quite violent rows that was going on between mum and, and dad. And in the middle of this um, violent row, the three of us, the th- me and my two brothers, we were kind of sat in the corner, I think kind of cowering in the corner while this row, while this row was going on. And uh, in the middle of the row, I remember my dad uh, saying to my, my mum, uh, tell them, you, you tell, you tell them. And my mum begged him at this point, no, 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 I'm not going to tell him, not, not now. And then he said, if you don't tell them, I'll tell them. And, and then she begged him and said, no, no, not, not now, not now, Barry, not now. And he walked over to the three of us, we were sat in the corner, and he said this, he said, right, you three bastards, I'm not your dad. So that was, that was one of my earliest... But one of my earliest memories, and, and, and obviously a, a very significant memory, you can imagine, in my, in my life. This person I'd grown up with thought he was my dad, being told he wasn't my dad, but in, in, this, uh, in, in this terrible round, right, you know, right, you, you know, I'm, not, I'm not your dad. Obviously, that terminated their relationship after that was the, the route to end their, their kind of partnership. And, um, and, sort of, and uh, Barry moved out of the house, and uh, we grew up, at least for a time, 
with my mum as being a, being a single parent. So for me, um, um, I, never knew, I, never knew my, I never knew my dad. So in some senses, it's this, it's this one. Um, it turned out my, my father lived in Liverpool um, and uh, the, my parents, had, he'd been an alcoholic, so my parents had sp- split up. Because of his alcoholism, he'd not been allowed access to the children for the, for the safety of us three as kids. And uh, so I grew up thinking to myself, when I'm 18, I'll go to Liverpool. I lived in Lancaster. I'll drive to Liverpool about, about an hour south and I'll find him. I'll go, and, I'll go and find him and look him up. I don't care how bad he's been. I'll find him. And then um, when I was 17, there was a knock on the door and my mum opened the door and she said, it's your Auntie Mary, um, who's my, my dad's sister, who I, I didn't know. And she came through with the news that he died. He died of a heart attack age 51. He'd carried on his alcoholism for a number of years. It had serious effect on his health. He'd, he'd, uh, he'd, he died. And that night, I used to keep a diary when I was 17. I remember um, writing in my diary that, uh, that night when the news came through when I was in the lower sixth. Um, last night, I cried myself to sleep um, crying about a man I never knew. And that's how it felt. It felt like there was this, there was this dad-shaped hole in my life. I never knew my dad. But of course, there was this abusiveness too in terms of the effect of Barry and, and, uh, and what, was, what was said as well. So actually, given this, surely I'd be, I'd be exhibit A, surely, um, for the argument that, that the idea of God as father is not a helpful picture image in our contemporary society. Um, I fall very much in the statistics of uh, coming from a, a home that's broken, pretty, pretty dis- very, very dysfunctional, as I've just described it to you. And so God, perhaps God as father, isn't a, it wouldn't be a good picture image for me. But my experience is that I found it just to be the exact opposite. My experience is that the Holy Spirit over the years has revealed the fatherhood of God to me in such intimacy that I doubt I would know sometimes if I came from a more functional background. It's, it's become a redemptive thing. And this is what God is in the business of doing, isn't he? Genesis 50, one of my favourite uh, verses in the Joseph saga, the end of the Joseph saga, uh, where um, uh, Joseph said this, what, what man meant for evil, God meant for good, the saving of many lives. God is in the restoration business. God is in the business of actually bringing good even out of evil and adverse circumstances so that his goodness, his truth, his purposes can triumph. So God is my heavenly dad. I, in, public, in public worship, I don't, I don't I say that. There's a bit of a cultural jar with that. In my own private worship, I do. Heavenly, I, call God, I call the Lord my, my heavenly, heavenly dad. I come before him and uh, sometimes I'll say, no, it's your, it's your, it's your son. I'll, I'll come before him and I have a relationship with him as father. God is depicted, of course, in uh, typical iconography as, as something like this. This is how he's seen as this kind of benevolent uh, father figure um, on the cloud. God is father, but obviously not in this, uh, not in this old-fashioned iconic depiction. What does God uh, literally look like? Well, my daughter, I, I was talking earlier, wasn't I, about pictures from children and this is trinity trinity's five this was a this was a picture of god she was at uh, sunday school at st Aldate's, i think and they all drew god this is god i don't know whether it's the burning bush maybe maybe it's actually an an, an, an iconic protestant depiction of god in a theophany a burning bush. i don't know i, don't know. I could have i did not i didn't ask her that so it reminds me of that old story doesn't it where the you know, child's drawing god and you, you know, the parent says what are you doing so i'm drawing god and then the parent says well nobody knows what he looks like and the child says, well, they will when I'm finished. And then we heard that one. So we do now. Now we know what he looks like now that Anastasia is finished. The point of this is simply t- to say we can look at, 
we can know what God is like supremely at looking at the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the icon, is the Greek word, the image of the invisible God. But the reason I was using this story is, is Jesus tells this amazing story, um, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son, which is a revelation of the fatherhood of God. So that's what we're going to reflect of, reflect on in the rest, rest in the rest of this session. So seven things that I'm going to draw out to do with who God is, the character of God, which will help us drink deep um, of our identity that we are sons and daughters by adoption. And that may, may that be a redemptive, for some of us here, like me, a redemptive um, image. And I hesitate to use the words metaphor because it's more than, more than that. There was a theologian, Pannenberg, a few years ago who said God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's, it's not a, a metaphor. It's not, it's, not, not, it's not that God is like a father. God is the father. Um, and actually by... Uh, but of course, it's, it, his fatherhood is the perfect fatherhood, um, far better than even the, the best of earthly dads and, and, and able to redeem experience of broken and, and dysfunctional fatherhood, which is such as I experienced in my case. So the first thing is this, the father is there. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father. Um, this is the title of, of course, a famous book by the apologist Francis Schaeffer many years ago. We worship the God who is there. God is not an absentee dad. He's not someone who is emotionally distant, if that was your experience. He's the one who's perfect. He's the one who's present. He's the one who's salient. He's the one who's good. He's the one who strives after connection with you. Truly, God is the Father who is there. But the Father is also releasing. He's the one who confers honour on us as his children in such a way that he gives us permission and that includes permission to mess up, uh, permission to get it wrong, permission to fail. And we see this in the story, don't we, where the son says, Father, give me my share of the estate. And you, you, you no doubt will have heard sermons on, the, on this passage, which explores the Near Eastern context and, um, and talks about the audacity of this kind of question to the father, um, which was a tantamount to saying perhaps, to the, to the dad, you know, dad, I wish you were dead. It's, it's, dad, it's, you know, I don't care, I don't care that you're alive. It's, I, I wish you were dead. You know, give me my share of the estate. Even, you know, I want the money now as if you were dead now, even though I know that you're still living. But look at the response to that audacious question. So he divided um, his property uh, between them. God gave, gave them free will, even if that free will meant choices were made against him. And that's what God does with us. Coercion to be forced into something is in fact the antithesis of the gospel. This is what makes me sad when I hear of um, church leaders, perhaps who've been guilty of any, any form of, ab of abuse, but um, you know, sometimes the, the spiritual ab abuse uh, or manipulation, even evangelists get a reputation for being manipulative. This is the opposite of the character of our God. Love demands that choice is given and that's what God does with each one of us. Um, before before um, I lived in York, my previous job, lived in uh, Watford for a while. Uh, Watford is in the St Albans Diocese and I went up for a walk um, in St Albans up around the cathedral, um, St Albans Abbey, and I noticed on one of the doors there was this graffiti 
um, that you could just make out. I think a, a verger of the cathedral obviously tried to scrub it out a little bit, but uh, I don't know whether you can see what it says, um, what the graffiti says is this, no gods, no masters, and then there's the symbol for anarchy, the kind of A inside a circle. And I thought, well, you know, a bit of an intelligent graffiti artist there. And, and actually, at least there's a, a logic to it. No gods, in other words, I, I, I want to live as if God is dead. No gods, no masters, nobody to tell me what to do, how to live my life, and then anarchy. Well, at least it's logical, that's true. Because the, the, the net product of actually rejecting the government of God, uh, either individually in our own lives, or in the lives of a society, ultimately will be anarchy, lawlessness, uh, will ultimately ensue. That's the logical conclusion of going that particular route. So we need to watch out because God, by and large, gives us what we want. Okay, number three, the father is pursuing. Um, so we're told, of course, that the, the son went off and uh, basically spent his money in wild living. We're all familiar um, with, the, with the story. And then we're told there's the, the, the moment of repentance in the story where the son says, I know I will arise and go to my father um, and I'll say to him, Father, you know, um, even your servants are treated better than what my life has become now. Take me on, take me on as one of your servants. This was the rehearsed speech of uh, the prodigal son as he returns to his dad. But what we're told um, in verse 20 is this. Um, uh, so he got up and he went to his father, that's the prodigal son. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. The nature of God is that God is in pursuit of his sons and his daughters. He's in pursuit of you, he's in pursuit of me. That's true if, uh, if, before we know Christ. John Wesley, the evangelist, used a phrase uh, called, called provenient grace. And what Wesley meant by that was the grace of God at work in the unbeliever, drawing the unbeliever to God, so that the unbeliever might become a believer and have a relationship with God. If that's, if that's true in terms of unbelievers, how much more is that true of those of us who have bowed the knee to him? There are times in my own life that I've, I've drifted from God, um, and my experience has been that God has been in pursuit of me. Uh, that God has been more desirous of me to, to be in intimacy with him, far more than I, than I have been uh, with him. The father is pursuing. Some of you might have seen this contemporary painting by Charlie Mackesy. Um, that, um, uh, I've got one, one of these, a copy of this, that hangs, hangs in my office at, at Wycliffe Hall. And it shows the moment of what Henry Nguyen, Henry Nguyen, the, of the, uh, the Roman Catholic priest uh, who wrote a book about the prodigal son a number of years ago, a uh, Dutch-American Catholic priest, uh, what Henry Nguyen calls the divine embrace. It, 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 uh, in silhouette form, there it is, the divine embrace, when we're, the, when we're told the son returns to the father and the father wraps his arms around the son and hugs him and kisses him. And the paraphrase across the uh, silhouette is very moving. This is the story of the prodigal son. It should really be called the running father um, who waited every day for his boy to return, the boy who had rejected him so badly. And finally, when he saw him from a long way off, his father ran to him he hugged him and he kissed him. God is uh, the one who is pursuing us, pursuing us that we might be in that place of intimacy uh, with himself. The father is compassionate. Um, we're told the father saw him um, from a long way off and was filled with compassion. A few years ago, I was a prison chaplain of a young offenders institution in Bristol. And you can imagine... 
it was kind of a difficult, difficult thing. Sometimes uh, having discipline for all these kind of young offenders, um, I, I think it's the only time that I've had things thrown at me when I was preaching. I, was, I remember one day I had donuts thrown at me when I, was, when I was preaching. I think I ducked and they missed. That was good. And there was a death threat once, one occasion. But that, that inmate, he got shipped out to a different prison. So you can imagine there was um, issues of church discipline, perhaps slightly more than your average church, in this, in this, in this chapel. Anyway, I arrived for uh, work one day and one of the other chaplains, my colleague, the Roman Catholic chaplain, he put a sign up on the, on the chapel notice board to the left and it said this, beware of the God, was the, was the sign that he put. Obviously, kind of like a paraphrase, beware of the dog. Beware of the God. So he was basically, he was, so my colleague was obviously trying to put the fear of God into these, into these young guys. And, uh, but I, when I saw this, I actually took it down. I was the senior chaplain, so I thought I could do that. So I took, it, <laughs> I took it down, because obviously this wasn't the message that I was wanting to communicate. Beware of the God. You know, God is this, you know, uh, kind of uh, fearful, fearful um, like, like a schoolmaster in the sky, like a, like a celestial schoolmaster in the sky, waiting to see when you step out of line so he can zap you in some way. Reminds me of that story, you might have heard it, of the mother who was trying to instill discipline into her children. So she thought maybe the fear of God would work. So she invited in the Reverend Ogre, the local vicar, because he was a scary man. And uh, so her two boys were there, Bobby and Peter. They were sat down on the sofa. Reverend Ogre was up there and he said to them, where is God? He did this to try and instill the fear of God into them. They, they said nothing. So he repeated it the second time, where is God? And they, didn't, they did nothing. One of them slightly looked at the other and then looked back. And then he thought it up the volume even more. So he tried it a third time, where is God? Said the Reverend Ogre. At that point, Bobby jumped to his feet, turned to Peter and he said, come on, let's get out of here. God's gone missing and they think we did it. <laughs> so uh, anyway, God is, God is not like that. He's not this celestial schoolmaster waiting to pounce on us for our uh, misdemeanors. The father is compassionate. So uh, he did, his dad didn't even know it. He just saw his boy. He didn't even know at this point uh, that, the, that the son was repentant in any way. But while he saw him from a long way off, the father uh, was filled with compassion, um, we're told. Um, okay, the father is intimate. Uh, he threw his arms around him and kissed him. This, this moment of the divine embrace when the father uh, throws his arms around his son. There's lots of work being done on this passage, some of it by this guy here, Kenneth E. Bailey, who was, died a few years ago, who was a, an expert uh, in theology, but particularly the Middle Eastern Semitic culture and the surrounding cultures. And um, Bailey uh, has commented in his, in his work, The Cross and the Prodigal, just how massively countercultural this was, how, you know, how, how in many ways un-Jewish um, this was. This wasn't a, a depiction of paternal intimacy that would have been commonly recognised by the culture. But it's a depiction from Jesus to us as to how God the Father feels about each one of us. The father is celebrating. What does the dad say? Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. God celebrates you. God more, more than loves you. He actually likes, he likes you. Um, he, he celebrates you. He's your biggest cheerleader. And, uh, and the father is the one, God the perfect father is the one who speaks his words of affirmation which bring liberation and healing and joy. The father is affirming, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
but now is found. Just like the words of the Father to Jesus at his baptism when Jesus comes up out of the water and a voice from heaven we're told in the gospel says, this is my son, my beloved, in him I'm well pleased, in whom I'm well pleased. And even though that was said specifically about Christ, again, I believe that's applicable to us. It's as if God would say to us, this is my son, this is my daughter, my beloved, the one I love. In them, I'm well pleased. Just finish with a story. I was on the staff until about 18 months ago of a church in York, um, St. Michael Le Belfry. And uh, just a few weeks before I preached, I, I, uh, before I left, I preached at a, a service. Uh, there were lots of students there. I gave an opportunity for people to give their lives to Christ. A number of people did. And uh, one of them came to talk to me immediately after the service. His name was Ryan. And um, I chatted to this guy, Ryan, who'd never been to our church before. One of his friends had brought him from the university. And uh, he said to me, he prayed the prayer to receive Christ. And I said, uh, that's, that's um, great, Ryan. And I said to him this, I said, how long have you believed in God? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, how long have you believed God God exists because my experience of an evangelist as an evangelist is of course many people who give their lives to Christ they do so from a position of theism they you know they believe in God in some vague however vague um, and uh, they go from there to actually saving faith and turning their, li their life over to Jesus Christ and he anyway so he answered the question he said he, he said um, oh he said, how long have you been in God, believed in God he said about 50 minutes something like that and I said I said what do you mean and he said well he said when I got up this I was an atheist he said when I got up this morning I was an atheist and I said, well, what, what made you believe in God? And he said, well, when you were speaking, he said, belief just switched, like a fl it flicked inside. I just, all of a sudden, I believe when you were speaking. I thought, amazing, the goodness of God. Again, like the Apostle Paul says, faith comes from hearing the word of God as the word of God is preached. Faith was ignited in this guy. So I then said to him, Can we, let me just pray for you now. So, I, so he said, yes, so I prayed for him. And as, when I prayed, I, I sensed God give me a verse for him, which is in uh, Psalm 68, verse five. And I said, to him, Ryan, I get this verse where, it's, where it says, a father of the fatherless uh, um, is God in his holy dwelling. And I, get, I said, it gave him a prophetic word and said, I sense that you know, you've not known your dad, you've not known your biological dad, and, uh, and, and God wants to be a father to you. He wants to, he wants to apply his fatherhood um, to you. Anyway, after, basically, towards the end of that prayer, uh, Ryan looked up, his eyes were in, uh, full of tears and then he, he gave out an ex expletive, which I won't repeat in this context. He gave out some kind of uh, swear word. Obviously, the process of sanctification was only just beginning, so uh, he him off with that. So he gave, up some, he gave up some swear word and he said, how did you know that? And I said, how did I know what? And what he said, he said to me, sure enough, he said, I didn't know my dad. Um, he said, um, my dad wasn't there for me. He said, but uh, he said, my granddad, my granddad looked, looked after me and he was like a father to me, my granddad. And he just died uh, just four weeks ago. And he said, I'm grieving the loss of my dad at the moment. Well, I'm still in touch with him. Ryan, 18 months later, he's still part of St. Michael of Belfry Church and is being disciple there. And he's discovering this amazing truth that, that our great God is just that. He's the father of the fatherless, is God in his holy dwelling. Whatever our experience of a biological father was in the room here, um, whether it was uh, having a, a, a pretty good, not a perfect one, but a pretty good one, uh, whether it really was a bit of a, a, a car crash as it was for me or whether something much more in the, in the middle. God wants to reveal himself to us as the perfect father more and more. 
And from that revelation, we learned to trust him. And that identity, we drink deep, not just cerebrally, but experientially of that identity, as it says in Ephesians 1.5, that we are sons, daughters of God by adoption, made possible by Christ. And that, that sense of identity can be the security that God wants to give us within the storms of life and the key to unlocking peace and joy and even healing at the deepest level of our beings. I'm going to hand back in just a moment. We're going to, um, I think, have an opportunity to, to pray together. Just allow me, to, just let me, let me pray first of all, just as we come into land. So Father, we thank you that you are um, our heavenly dad. Thank you, that's the teaching of, of Jesus. Jesus, you taught us to pray, our Father, Abba, uh, who art in heaven. Thank you for this amazing Old Testament prophecy from the Psalms that God, you are not just a father, but a father to the fatherless. You are in your holy dwelling. And Father, um, in, a, in a world, we live in this world where identity is massively under siege and people are questioning, perhaps like never before, certainly for a long, long time, that question, you know, who am I? And Lord, for those of us, Lord, who are Christians, those of us who've, who've given their lives to you, thank you that we can, we can say, Lord, that we are your children. We are sons, we are daughters by adoption. And Father, my prayer is that that amazing identity of being a son or a daughter um, of you, our Heavenly Father, that, that we might know that experientially, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. May we know it experientially. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Spirit of the living God, come, Holy Spirit. We pray that you might apply now the fatherhood of God, that amazing truth, the truth of the fatherhood of God to the deepest level of, levels of our being. Father, do that regard whether we've had good a good uh, biological dads, whether we've not, whether we've not known our uh, fathers, what, whatever our experience is, for those of us who've had bad experiences or not known a father, may this, um, this truth, Father, may it be a redemptive thing for us. May it be a healing thing for us, we pray. But for all of us, may we know you as father. Lord, may uh, that be our identity as sons, as daughters, by adoption, through grace, through your amazing gift, and may, Father, that give us such a sense of personhood, such a sense of security, such a, a rock-like confidence that, uh, that, Lord, we might be able to get through life and actually minister to others and point others to the confidence and the security that we have in you. We ask it in your name.